You're listening to Taza Chipotle, the show that will take you to discover the edible treasures of Mexico. Episode 29. Welcome to this episode of Paz de Chipotle, the audible companion of Sabor, this is Mexican food, a digital magazine dedicated to exploring the markets, streets, recipes, and traditions that make Mexico an edible paradise. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. To find more information about the show, please go to pasdechipotle.com. You can subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. The cultural history of coffee drinking in Mexico is an area full of possibilities of exploration. Uh, in other words, there is very little written about it. Most historical studies are centered around the cultural, political and economic aspects of the production, but not so much about the traditions associated with the enjoyment of the drink or coffee-based products. While researching for this episode, it soon became very clear uh, that, not surprisingly, the presence of a coffee culture is all the more evident or stronger in the regions where the crop is produced, and also in central Mexico, the capital, and the surrounding metropolis that have historically welcomed people from all nations. I think it is useful to mention that Mexico's complex geography is partially responsible for the many regional traditions. For instance, while the notion of progress in the arid northern part of Mexico meant a rapid industrialization, the same notion of prosperity in the southeast has always been linked to agricultural success. So, the evolution of food and cultural practices have been largely determined by the local agriculture. What it is clear is that for the best part of the 19th century, drinking coffee had many class connotations. And it is even fair to say that it has been only mm, in the last 15 years that Mexicans have gradually embraced a broader concept of coffee drinking. When I was a child, and even as a teenager, there were no fancy coffee shops, there were very few brands available, and the options were reduced to instant coffee to prepare black or milky cups and hyper-sweet café de olla. And now that I think of it, probably the smells that come to mind when I think about one of my grandparents are tobacco and coffee. Beyond all people, probably only the bohemian type were the main consumers of coffee through the 70s, 80s and even 1990s. We have come a long way indeed. And while I don't really celebrate the advent of unicorn diabetes inducing drinks, Coffee is, for the first time in the nation's history, a highly democratized drink. Now, bear in mind, I'm not talking about the quality or types of preparation or even extraction, just its mere popularity and availability. But the influence of global coffee chains, in this case, 
have actually been partially responsible for this change. In very recent years, there has been significant initiatives promoted by the federal government and many specialized coffee organizations to support local producers, provide specialized training, credits for coffee bars and coffee specialty businesses. But I'm going to leave this introduction right here for now, because this episode is actually about the origins of coffee. And we will tell this story from the beginning. It is hard to imagine facing the day without the boost of a steaming cup of coffee early in the morning. Whether it's black, cappuccino, café de olla sweetened with jaggery and cinnamon, a creamy café con leche, espresso, or just stained with a dash of milk. Mexicans consume an annual average of 1.6 kilos of coffee, a less than a modest amount if you compare it with, say, Finland, that consumes the equivalent of 12 kilos or um, 26.4 pounds of ground beans per capita. And it's all the more surprising when you think that Mexico's southeast falls right into the so-called coffee belt. The coffee belt is a horizontal strip sandwiching the equator between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn, and pretty much all the countries that are located in this section in the world share roughly the same climatic characteristics that favour the production of coffee. The largest introduction of foreign crops in Mexico occurred mainly in the 16th century. Most of the fruits and vegetables were of European origin. And although I've talked extensively about foods, there is much to explore yet about drinks made with imported crops. Which actually reminds me to put a pin on winemaking, but that's for another time. Coffee has a long and fascinating history of its own, and it is really worth beginning with the origins of it. Not only because it is an excuse to navigate across time and cultures, chasing one of the world's most beloved drinks. But it also helps us frame the relevance of this prodigious plant and the sublime qualities its fruit has. The accidental discovery and consequent domestication of coffee is believed to have taken place around the 9th century. Legend has it that Kaldi, a young goat herder from the Omoro nomadic tribe in today's Ethiopia, noticed that one season his goats began acting euphorically after eating uh, something. They were jumping, climbing and kicking, and he discovered that what the goats ate were actually the plumped red berries of a plant. He tried some himself and noticed he felt less tired and more energized. So he collected some and took them back to show them to his people. They actually took little interest as the berries didn't really have much flavor. And some of them tossed them into the fire. But soon the smell of the roasting berries and seeds awakened the curiosity of the people who took them out and chewed them. The experimentation began. The rest became history. <laughs> <laughs> 
Isn't that a nice little tale? Only, I'm afraid to say, other than the region, period, and actually the part of the goats also could be true. The rest is just a legend. There is archaeological evidence that supports the fact that modern Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia and Yemen were the first coffee drinkers in the world. And this region alone is home to more than 5,000 different varieties of Arabica Robusta, the planet's most popular coffee cultivar. There is inconclusive theories about the dissemination of the drink and the plant, but it is clear enough that by the early 1400s, the Arab-speaking countries had adopted both. Like many luxury products from the Middle East, such as spices, coffee was first introduced to Europe via the maritime trade routes of the Mediterranean Sea. But it wasn't until the first decade of the 1600s that Italian merchants started actively promoting the consumption of coffee, and this was to grow their own trade business. Driven by this very strong motivation, we can explain why the coffee culture and instruments to aid its preparation rapidly developed to come up with more sophisticated methods of preservation, roasting, grinding and extraction. It didn't take too long for other European countries to adopt the drink, and by 1652, the first coffee stall appeared in London. It took France um, about 20 years to follow London, and Paris saw the opening of its first coffee house until 1675. In 1685, an Armenian merchant, whose German name or Prussian name was Johannes Theodat, opened the first coffee house in Vienna, Austria. The city's enthusiasm and appetite for indulgent desserts rapidly incorporated coffee drinking as part of their social rituals. And it became such a complex and significant part of their costumes that the culture of Vienna Coffee House was listed many centuries later as intangible cultural heritage by UNESCO. Fast forward many years, and it was a French naval officer, one of the many accidental heroes of this story, or at least of the next chapter. Because he decided to take seedlings of coffee trees from the French Royal Botanical Gardens and travel with them on a mission in 1723 that was heading to the French colonies in the Antilles, specifically Martinique. It only took less than 50 years for coffee to become one of the most profitable crops of the Caribbean French territories and reach the staggering amount of more than 19 million plants just in Martinique. Now, these French and Dutch Caribbean colonies had constant political disputes, and one of them was stopped by the impartial intervention of the Kingdom of Brazil which back then was still a Portuguese colony. The dispute was indeed ended, but the diplomat, Sergeant Major Francisco de Melo Paleta, managed to smuggle fresh coffee seeds from Guyana, and so coffee made its way to Brazil in 1727. Soon after, it also propagated to Jamaica, Colombia, Bolivia, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Venezuela, Haiti, Santo Domingo, and eventually New Spain or Mexico. 
the introduction of coffee in Mexico may have occurred without anyone taking much notice. You see, with 3,294 kilometers of coastline just in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean, plus the 7,828 kilometers in the West Coast and the Pacific, many crops, not only coffee obviously, found their way into the territory through hundreds of entry points. Since there are several states that fall right into the coffee belt, like I said at the top of the show, the history and success of each region developed uh, somehow independently and in different ways. But I will talk about that further ahead. For now, here are a few key events to consider in our timeline. One of the oldest documents that mention coffee in New Spain is an order from 1792 issued by the viceregal government indicating that all utensils and machinery imported for the purposes of processing coffee and sugarcane will be exempt from taxation. It is commonly assumed that the Spanish landowner Juan Antonio Gómez de Guevara planted one of the first, if not the very first, commercial coffee plantation at his estate, the Hacienda de Guadalupe in Amatlán de los Reyes in the coastal state of Veracruz. Another important set of documents are trade records from the port of Veracruz that declare a cargo of 272 quintales which is about 13,600 kilos of coffee that left the port in 1802. Further inland, in the humid and hot state of Morelos, in 1809, the first crops of coffee were planted in the cities of Cuernavaca and Yautepec. And the Eden-like state of Chiapas and future coffee powerhouse welcomed the crop in 1820, but it wasn't until 1846 when the Italian immigrant Geronimo Mancinelli created the first commercial plantations in this region. Much later, in the state of Oaxaca on the Pacific coast, a clergyman by the name of José María Cortés planted coffee allotments in the high mountains of San Agustín Los Chicha in 1854. As you can see, the introduction of coffee as a crop didn't follow a specific pattern and was indeed the result of personal initiatives from landowners. This characteristic is particularly significant because it will determine from then onwards the highly regionalized production of coffee in the country. We will return with the show after this short break. Mexico's grand fiestas are a unique way to remember and joyously celebrate our history, cultural diversity and ancestral traditions. From the patriotic occasions like Independence Day and the anniversary of the Mexican Revolution to Christmas, Dia de la Candelaria and the world-famous Day of the Dead, these iconic celebrations bring together new and ancient traditions, from the spiritual to the joyous, always welcoming locals and strangers in rewarding and soulful celebrations of life. The Mexican Fiestas issue of Sabor, this is Mexican food magazine, explores the cultural history of the nation's festive calendar through in-depth articles, 
and many traditional recipes to prepare unique dishes like pozole, chiles en hogada, day of the dead bread, and many more. To know more about the wonderful articles and recipes to start the making of your own family traditions, go to pazdechipotle.com forward slash magazine. Take sabor with you on all your digital devices. Go to pazdechipotle.com forward slash magazine and get ready to cook, learn, and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined. The adoption of coffee as a fashionable and sophisticated drink was largely influenced by the costumes of the court of Maximilian I of the House of Habsburg, who was Emperor of Mexico for a very short period, from 1864 to 1867. However, during this brief but culturally significant period, anything that came from Europe, namely art, fashion, architecture, and of course food, was seen as desirable and highly aspirational for the middle and upper classes. Large and wealthy Mexican cities attracted European restaurateurs and patissiers who immediately profited from the Mexicans' new obsession with anything French or Austrian. Being seen drinking coffee or serving it when entertaining guests was an unquestionable sign of good taste. This period also coincided with the architectural makeover of plazas, gardens, the installation of grand gazebos, opera houses, and theatres. It was almost as if all leisure activities were being reinvented, and the self-proclaimed Mexican aristocracy didn't really hesitate in taking full ownership of these spaces and their enjoyments, and drinking coffee indeed was a common denominator in most of them. Fast forward to the final years of the 19th century, the national production of coffee had for the very first time the deliberate intervention of the state to promote its exports. Unsurprisingly, one of Mexico's main buyer was the US, and actually coffee became the second most profitable crop of the nation. But who were the people behind the production of it? Let's find out. Attracting foreign investment and the development and industrialization of agricultural production was a top priority for Porfirio Diaz's government, who actively worked and facilitated the acquisition of land for its exploitation particularly in the states of Chiapas, Campeche, Yucatán, Tabasco, and Veracruz. And so, dozens of investors moved in to create their own haciendas. And these wealthy immigrants came mostly from Italy, Belgium, Greece, and England. But most notably were the many Prussians who flocked to the Soconusco Mountains of Chiapas. 
1881, the most successful coffee haciendas of Chiapas had names like Germania, Nueva Alemania, Hamburgo, Bremen, Lübecka, Hanover, Paderna, and some well-known family names in the region were Keller, Kahl, Geisemann, Lutmann, Edelmann, Rank, Hagen, Pollens, Weidemann, and Sonnemann. Unlike most immigrants who came to seek their fortune in Mexico, Germans, or rather Prussians, often went back to their country to marry other wealthy women, who then brought back. Another costume was to have arranged marriages among other coffee-producing families. Coffee cultivation in Mexico even displaced tobacco. Still to this day, there are 13 states in the country that is, 13 of the 32 that we have, that produce coffee. And if you want to see where these states are located, make sure to watch this episode's YouTube version, because I'm going to put some maps detailing the location of these states. To close this episode, and first part, about coffee, let's have a look at some of the most popular ways to drink coffee in Mexico, and indeed, remain highly popular to these days. Upper-class cafes used to serve the national equivalent of Viennese coffee served with sweetened cream. Street coffee sellers used to offer in the 1800s ready-made coffee, and more upper-market street vendors had little stalls with actual coffee machines that they used to prepare and serve coffee right on the spot. More humble versions of coffee were also made at homes and sold at popular eateries and markets. It was a more diluted drink, boiled in a clay pot, heavily sweetened with jaggery and flavoured with cinnamon. This style of coffee is still a nation's favourite and we know it by the name of Café de Olla. Coffee has really that unique quality that can adapt to any social occasion, meal of the day, and taste preferences. is a staple in breakfasts, ideal for the long post-meal conversations Mexicans love to indulge in whenever there is a chance. It is offered in family gatherings and during wakes, where it is usually served with a generous splash of rum, brandy, or tequila. Still very famous to this day is the Veracruz-style Lecheros, which is a drink that is half milk and half coffee, and it is served in tall glasses with no handle, so burning your hand is part of the experience. It is poured using a kettle from a frightening height to form a thick and very impressive foam. In the second part of the series about coffee, I will talk about the advent of the international chain cafes and the types of coffee that are grown now in Mexico, and why the country abandoned competing for high-volume sales against giants like Colombia and Brazil, for instead focusing on producing micro-batches and specialty coffees. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. To find more information about this project, please go to pazitipotle.com. 
Support the show on Patreon. Patreon is the largest platform that connects independent creators with great audiences like you. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle Podcast. Every donation makes a big difference. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle Podcast and be part of this delicious story. The next episode of the show features an interview with a multi-talented author, photographer, video director and cook, Yvette Marquez Sharpnack, founder of Muy Bueno. Yvette's work has been featured in People en Español, NBC, The Huffington Post and BuzzFeed. You can find her on Instagram as Muy Bueno Cooking. We talk about business lessons, what it takes for a Mexican-American businesswoman to make it. We also discussed her work promoting food security and literacy. This was a dynamic, stimulating and really enjoyable conversation, which I'm sure you will enjoy. Well, that's it for this week, my friends. Until the next time.